Morning. How is everybody this morning? Yes, praise the Lord for that. So this morning we're going to continue on in our theme of Advent, but we're going to do it in a little different way. We're going to look at prophecy this morning. Mike, this is going to be fun. We're going to enjoy this time. Yes, right. (laughs) So this morning, we're going to look at the prophecies of Christ. Christ came, came into the world, born of a virgin, born in the small town of Bethlehem. But there is much more. And it's amazing to stop and to look at how many prophecies Christ fulfilled and yet has to fulfill. There are over 300 prophecies written concerning Christ, concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we look at the miracle of his birth in this Advent season, I want us to reflect on just how miraculous this event was. If this event did not take place in the way that it did, and how it did, what are we worshiping? But we worship a miraculous God. So all the prophecies that were written about Christ were completed at least 450 years before he was born, which is amazing to think about. Not only was Christ's birth prophesied, but it also, uh uh-oh, here we go again, huh? All right, we'll just make do. So not only was it prophesied, but it was fulfilled. No other religion prophesied the birth of its religious leader. They did not prophesy Muhammad's birth for the Muslim faith, nor Joseph Smith with the Mormons, nor Charles Russell with the Jehovah's Witness, nor Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddhists. No other religion save Christianity predicted its Messiah's birth and came true. So this morning, we're going to take a closer look at that and put it all into perspective. What does it mean? How big is our God? How great is our God? And that is going to be the theme of our Advent this season, is how great our God is. But let's take a moment and let's pray before we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you give us boldness because Christ's work was perfect. We thank you that you have given us access to your throne through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've washed us whiter than snow, that you have made us pure and justified in your sight because Jesus Christ fulfilled all that you ordained him to do. For you are God and you alone are worthy of our praise. We just ask that you would be worshipped and praised through this message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look a little closer and let's kind of put this all into perspective. If Jesus' birth out of the over 300 prophecies only fulfilled eight of them, Only eight. So we're going to take a small number and then we're going to kind of expound on it. Mike, I know you're laughing because you probably already know the figures. But it's a lot of fun. So we're going to go through it. So if Jesus' birth only fulfilled eight simple prophecies, the likelihood of that is one in 100 quintillion. Now, if you don't know what a quintillion is, if you take 100 or take one and put 17 more zeros after it, that's a quintillion. But let's put it into a little bit simpler terms. 1,000 billions, so we all know what a billion is, billions a lot, 1,000 billions is a trillion, 1,000 trillions is a quadrillion, 1,000 quadrillions is a quintillion, and we're talking 100 of those. 
That's big, right? So let's break it down in a little bit more of a perspective. If you take a silver dollar and you take 100 quintillion of those, they would stack up two feet deep and cover the entire state of Texas, which would be 171,891,840 acres. 171, almost 172 million acres covered two feet deep with these little coins. Now, the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling eight, now remember, we're only talking eight prophecies, only eight, is taking one of those silver dollars and putting a permanent mark on it, throwing it in the middle of this sea of coins the size of the state of Texas, two feet deep, mixing them all up, blindfolding somebody and telling them, now wander the state of Texas and pull out that one coin. That is the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling only eight prophecies. Now, let's go a little bit more. If Jesus fulfilled 48 prophecies, now we're only going a little bit more, it would be 10 to the 157th power, which means you take 10 and put 157 zeros after that number, and that's the likelihood of him fulfilling 48 prophecies. And yet we know from Scripture, and we know from the likelihood of God's greatness, that all 300 plus prophecies will be fulfilled. Only God. Only God can do that. Only God can take a number that, I can't even tell you what that number is. Mike, can you? Excellent. And we're way bigger than that. (laughs) So there's not a number out there that's big enough for Jesus Christ to fulfill everything that was written of him. And yet, we know that he's fulfilled the vast majority of them already. There are a few yet to come, and we'll get there. And I guarantee we will get there. What God has said, God will do. He has been faithful throughout all the ages, over and over and over. This is the God that we are worshiping this Christmas season. So if his first advent, fulfilled so many prophecies, and this morning we're only going to look at 24. So half of that 48 number. So we're only going to look at 24. But if he could do that, is not his second coming guaranteed? Is not his second coming a reality for us Christians? Do we not have the reality of the Scriptures and all that they entail as our beloved hope? Because Jesus Christ can do what he says he can do, we stand on the hope of being righteous before God who is holy, who is perfect, who is majestic and glorious, and yet we can be called as children. And yet we have been guaranteed sonship and daughtership because of Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross of Calvary, which was also a prophecy fulfilled. Hundreds of years before that kind of execution even began, or was even thought of, or originated. We're going to look at that one too. That one's a fun one. But this morning... We're going to stand on the Word of God and look and worship how great our God is because He is awesome. Test this morning. And I did it with my kids this morning and they haven't been able to get it yet. But I'm going to throw it out there and I want you families to get in your little groups and I want an answer. Out of all the Old Testament prophets, Who is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament? Who is the most quoted Old Testament prophet written in the New Testament? I'll give you guys a few minutes to get together in your little groups and come up with an answer. 
And there's no right or wrong, well, there is a right or wrong answer, but there's no right or wrong guess in here. There's a lot of prophets to choose from. And if you guys want a couple hints, I can give you a couple hints to help narrow it down. I'm sure if I give it, Mike will guess it. Anybody want a hint? I got a couple of them. Isaiah is incorrect. Jeremiah is incorrect. How about the Clarks? David is not it. Uh, my little family? What do you guys got? Okay. David? Daniel? Okay. Sandy? Oh, no, no, no. We're not Googling. <laughs> All right. So we're going to narrow it down. There is, one, there is a prophet that was of a priestly line. He was a descendant of the Levitical priestly line. No. But, not only that, he was part of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the destruction from the Babylonians in around 520 B.C. He worked alongside the prophet Haggai, so it was not Haggai. No. Elijah got it. It was Zechariah. It is. Zechariah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. Which surprised me. That wasn't my first guess when I went through it. But come to find out, he is. Anyway, so we're going to reflect on some of these prophecies that were written. Some by Zechariah, some by others. Yes, Isaiah had many. David, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah. We read Micah this morning. So this morning, and I kind of took it down, and I tried to pare it down and kind of put it in a little bit of an order, kind of going from the beginning on through. Now, I'm only hitting 24 this morning, so there's a lot more you guys can look up on your own. And I will guarantee you it is a fun, fun study to look at the prophecies fulfilled by Christ. So the first one, and we're going to be flipping around in our Bibles this morning, so make sure your Bibles are ready. We're not going to do sword drills, but there is a section where I'm going to have you guys read. i got a couple people that I'm going to have to pick on to read. So the first one we're going to look at is Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we find that in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which was written over 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, in about the 8th century. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now it's interesting that verbiage, the days of eternity. Because when we think of eternity, we don't think of days. God outside of time. And yet, somewhere back in eternity past, God ordained for Christ to be born. God ordained for Christ to come to this world. He already had a plan. Christ coming into the earth was not plan B because man fell. God knew this. God already had a plan, and it was always for Christ to come. So he was to come, born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Luke chapter 2, and also John chapter 7, 42, record the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Another quiz. What brought Christ to Beth, uh, brought Christ's parents to Bethlehem? Why was he? The census, right? Once again, God acted through his believers. No. 
God acted through the wicked. God acted through those who are in power. God moves the heart of a king like a stream of water, turning it in the way that he desires. God ordained, and it happened, and God used the heathen to do it. Secondly, the Christ was to be born of a virgin. Flip over to the book of Isaiah, one of our major prophets. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Now, Isaiah was talking to a king at this time, and the king was Ahaz. Isaiah was written around 735 B.C., a couple of years before Jesus was born. And he says this in Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You guys know what Emmanuel means? God with us, right? It's kind of amazing. God ordains of a virgin birth to prove that God is with us. To give us one who is God and yet fully man. Now that, we're never going to wrap our heads around that mystery of fully God and fully man. And yet it's a miraculous thing that is true. God came born fully of a woman and yet born of the Holy Spirit. We're going to move on. Thirdly, he would be in a kingly line, in the line of David. Isaiah, we're going to flip over one, two chapters to chapter 9. In verses 6 and 7, it says this, For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, there had to be some backlog in the genealogy there in order to get to David. David didn't just happen and start the line of Christ. So we're going to look at that. Matthew chapter 1 gives you the genealogy of Christ, but we're not going to turn there. I need a few volunteers to read. Jonathan. Genesis 12.3. Samuel, can I have you read? Genesis 26.4. Michael, can I have you read? Genesis 28.14-16. David, can I have you read? Genesis 49.8-12. Elijah, Isaiah 11.1. And anybody else? Josie? Isaiah 9.7. You should already be there. So, This morning, we're going to go through and look at the prophecy of the line of Jesus, starting with Abraham. 12.3, sir. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we have of Abraham it being said that in him all the families of the earth, not just the nation of Israel, All the families of the earth, Gentiles, Jews, both alike, will be blessed. That was fulfilled through Christ. Samuel, of Isaac. And I will make thy seed to multiply the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries. 
And in thy seed shall be all the nations of the earth to be blessed. Once again, the blessings of the nations. Mike, of Jacob. Yes, sir. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I give you Thank you. We know the story around that. Jacob's ladder, right? It's amazing. Amazing piece of history. Jonathan, uh, David, right? Uh, of the tribe of Judah, specifically. And not of the priestly line, which I find interesting. Jesus being our high priest was not born of the Levitical line, but of Judah. Go ahead. The kingly line. Genesis 49, 8-12. So we have here the blessing of Israel upon his children. And out of this, out of Judah, will come a ruler whose kingdom will not end. The scepter will not leave him. Elijah of the son of Dave, uh, Jesse. 11.1. Thank you. And we're going to talk about that word branch a little bit later. Josie, of the son of David, Isaiah 9 7. amazing verbiage there. Incredible. And yet, the line of David and the promise to David that he would never lack a man upon his throne was thus fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Christ rules and reigns today, yesterday, and forever. Christ will always rule and reign upon the throne of David, his father. It's interesting to see and to march through history and the promises and the hint of salvation for the entire world that God continues to give in the Old Testament over and over and over again, pointing to the coming Messiah, pointing to the coming need of all nations to repent and to come to himself. And that he would draw not just the Jews, but all men to himself. And because of that, we are blessed, are we not? Because I don't know anybody here that's of Jewish descent. 
Maybe somebody is mixed up somewhere, I don't know. But all of us are Gentiles. And yet God has called each of us to himself. And therefore we celebrate these truths that Christ came, Christ fulfilled. Fourthly, who is known as the weeping prophet? Anybody. Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah was written, or Jeremiah wrote, in the time before the exile to Babylon. Jeremiah had a wonderful and a beautiful heart for his people. We could learn a lot from him about how to weep and intercess for our people, how to have a heart for our nation and our countrymen. Jeremiah wrote many things that were sad, and one of them was a prophecy concerning Christ, but it was also a prophecy that was fulfilled in the destruction when the Babylonians came. Jeremiah 31.15, if you would turn there. So Israel's mourning would eventually turn to joy. Jeremiah 31.15 Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. For Rachel is weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Now there was an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. And a lot of times you'll find with prophecy, there was an immediate fulfillment, or a thereafter, very soon, fulfillment of the word. And yet there's also a long-term effect of this. This was also fulfilled because Christ was born. When Christ was born, who became jealous? Herod. Because Herod did not want any king greater than him. Herod wanted to be top man. He wanted to be better than everybody. He wanted to be over everybody. And he's a very cruel man. Killed many of his own children. But we know that Herod, through the Magi, found out that Christ was born. And the thing I find very interesting is that Jerusalem, and all Jerusalem with him, wasn't surprised. They knew the prophecy. They knew that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. They told them that. After the Magi came, he's like, he searched, where was the Christ to be born? Well, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was less than a day's journey away from Jerusalem. And yet they didn't get up and go see that God was born. His sign was there. The Magi attested to it. Who are the Magi descendants of? Do we guys, do we know? Out of Babylon. The Chaldeans, correct? The Chaldeans were trained by who? Daniel. Daniel, Daniel was a Jew. Daniel was a man who feared God and taught that to the Chaldeans. They were not surprised. They came looking for the Messiah who was born. They came to worship. They came to present gifts. And all Jerusalem let it go by. They knew it. The chief priests and the scribes, they knew it as well as the Magi did. And yet, what does it say? That along with Herod, they were disturbed. So out of this, Herod's wrath comes when the Magi don't come back and tell him who Jesus is and where he is. He goes out and destroys all male children under the age of two, two and under. So this prophecy was fulfilled, and it was actually spoken of in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Which leads us to our next prophecy, that Jesus was to be called out of the country of Egypt, which is interesting. I find that very interesting because as Israel was brought out of the land of Egypt, so Christ would come out of Egypt. By the calling of God. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea is a wonderful book. 
Um, if you guys don't get much time in it, I would suggest spending some time there. Hosea has a lot to say. It's a beautiful book. There's a lot of prophecy. There's a lot of uh, wonderful contrasts and and uh, many good lessons to learn. Uh, chapter 10 is one of my favorites. But I, uh, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now we find this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. After the death of Herod, So first, let me back up a little bit. Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt to get away from Herod because Herod was looking to kill the Son of God. God in his wisdom told Joseph in a dream, get up, take the woman and child and go to Egypt. Once again, God is fulfilling his word through those who are not his own. Through Herod's wrath and Herod's jealousy, God ushered in, Joseph and Mary going to Egypt and then calling his son from Egypt and once again fulfilling scripture. So once he came out of Egypt, once Herod passed away and was dead, God had yet another dream told Joseph return. So he called his son once again out of Egypt and they settled in what town? Do you guys remember? What town did they end up settling in when they came back? They didn't go back to Bethlehem because they were still scared. Nazareth, correct. Excellent. So once again, we have a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Isaiah 11 and verse 1 says this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. Oops, I must have put the wrong verse there. Uh, Jeremiah 20, well, actually, I will reference that. But Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will act, reign as king, and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now, the word Nazareth, uh, the word Nazareth comes from the root word Netzer, which means a branch. Here again, we see in these prophecies that Jesus was considered a branch, a root of Jesse, that he would bear fruit. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on earth. And then over in the book of Zechariah, where I told you we're going to be flipping around this morning. Come on, right there. Zechariah. Chapter 3, verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, and you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. And then in 6.12, And they say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. So Nazareth also has another meaning in the Hebrew, and it means despised. Jesus was despised of his kindred. But he fulfilled the prophecy of being a Nazarene, being the branch of God to bear fruit for the children of God. One that we looked at last week shortly is Jesus would be called a prophet. Moses prophesied this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, which was written in 1260 B.C. That's a couple years 
couple years before Jesus was born. And it says that he was to be called a prophet. And we see over and over in the New Testament scriptures, in the Gospels, that over and over they said, this must be the prophet, the Messiah we long awaited. Over and over we see that. Number eight, he would be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah chapter 49. I'm going to flip over there. 49 verses 5 and 6. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Christ once again fulfilled the great calling and commission of bringing light to the Gentiles. He fulfilled this. We'll look over in Acts chapter 13. We're going to hit the New Testament now so you guys can see these things. Acts 13, verse 47 and 48. For the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Once again, repeating the prophecy of Isaiah. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Once again, we see God using the prophecies of the Old Testament to bring understanding and wisdom to those written in the New Testament church in the early first century. They were praising and worshiping God for something that was written in the Torah, for something that was written in the Jewish Bible through the prophet Isaiah. They rejoiced because God brought salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. This, was, this is a fun one. Could I have somebody read Zechariah 9.9 this morning? And why is somebody's turning there? David, you got that? Oh, Josie does. All right. That's right. You got to read that this morning. So Zechariah 9.9. Go ahead and read that for us, Josie. Okay, so that is very specific. And we know that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding upon what? A donkey. But more specifically, as Josie read, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in the Old Testament times, that was actually very significant. And the people in Jesus' day would have recognized this. When a king came into a city, he was riding upon one of two things. Either a stallion... As a conquering king, a king that is conquered in war, victorious, or upon a donkey's colt that has never been sat upon, signifying he's coming, bringing peace. This is the prophecy that was written that Christ would come not upon a stallion, but upon a colt to bring peace. It is very interesting, the verbiage that God uses and the fulfillment of that, that Israel's king came bringing peace, not coming to conquer. And yet he conquered sin and death and hell. But he came to his people to bring peace. It was prophesied in Psalm 91. I'm going to turn over there. We're going to be in Psalm quite a bit, this latter part. Psalm 91. 
specifically verses 10 through 12. Psalm 91 says this, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This was talking about the temptation of Christ. Christ was to be tempted. He was to be tried in all ways such as we are. That way he could be a great and and an understanding high priest. And we read in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Christ. Was not Satan the one that used this verse to try to tempt Christ himself? For it is written. What was Christ's rebuttal? Every time he was tempted. For it is written. Do not put the Lord thy God to a test. Over and over when he was tempted, Christ himself, God in the flesh, went back to the scripture. Should we not take ear and listen and hear and understand? God wants us to use his word. Stand upon the word of Christ alone. Stand upon the word of scripture alone, for it is true, it is faithful, and he always provides a way out. Psalm, also, Psalm 55 This is a famous psalm. It's a good psalm. It's a psalm of David. Psalm 55 and verse 12 through 13 says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, for then I could bear it. Nor it is one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Also over in Psalm 41. Flip back a couple pages. Psalm 41. Psalm 41, 9 says this, For even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is a prophecy concerning Judas, that it would be a friend of the Savior, of the Messiah, who would betray him. We read about that in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 through 12, where Judas ate bread with Christ. And yet, it was Judas who betrayed him to the high priest, who betrayed him to the guards, as was foretold through the man, David. Not only would he betray the Christ, but he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12. Let me flip over there for you. Zechariah 11 and verse 12 says this. Then I said to him, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver for my wages. Now we're going to go on with the next prophecy with this continuing verse 13. But 30 shekels of silver was actually very specific in Zechariah's time. It was actually the price of a slave, which is interesting. But that's what was prophesied that for 30 shekels of silver, the price of a slave, Christ would be betrayed. This was fulfilled in Matthew 26, 14 through 16, when Judas went to the high priest and they weighed out for him 30 shekels of silver. That is what they agreed upon for Judas to betray Christ. And it says in the scripture, ever since that time that he received the money, he looked for an opportunity. So this price of betrayal would buy the potter's field. If you read on in verse 13, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. 
the potter's field would have been bought with the blood money and betrayal of an innocent one. And that was spoken of in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 8, where Judas threw the money back in the temple, which is very significant in the book of Zechariah. And the, and the high priest said, well, we can't keep this blood money. This is not for us to keep. And they went and they bought the potter's field, and Judas was buried there. It's very interesting. It's called from then on the field of blood. Over and over we see the hand of God moving. So he was to be despised. That was prophesied in Isaiah 53, verses 1 and verse 3. We see that played out through Matthew 26, John 1, John chapter 12. Jesus was despised. He was rejected by his own countrymen. What did the people say when, when Pilate was in front of them? Crucify him. His blood be on our head and upon the heads of our children. They cursed themselves without knowing it. Number 15, he was to suffer silently. Isaiah chapter 53, a beautiful chapter about the coming of Christ and about what he would suffer and the suffering servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53, 1 and 3, I'm sorry, 53 verses 7 and 8 talks about Jesus suffering silently before those who accuse him. We see in Matthew 27, 12 through 14 and Mark 15, 3 through 5, the silence that Jesus had before Pilate and before his accusers. He spoke not. And the scriptures also says, and he also did not threaten. How easy would it have been for God to say, all right, you're done. All right, you're done. And he didn't because there was a purpose. Micah chapter 5, we read verse 2 this morning, but if you would have backed up into verse 1, it prophesied that he would be struck with rods. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6 also prophesies the same thing, that the Christ would be struck with rods. We read in Matthew 27 verse 38 that Jesus was struck in the face with a rod. He was spit upon. He was despised. It was also prophesied that he would die of a Roman crucifixion. Over 500 years before Roman crucifixion was invented, it was prophesied that he would die in such a way. Who but God would know that? That was from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and also Psalm 22, verses 14 through 16, that the Christ would be pierced, his hands and his feet. That we find in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19. We read about the crucifixion of Christ. It was also prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he would be listed among transgressors. And we find that he was crucified amongst thieves, one on his left and one on his right fulfillment once again this one here really struck me if you would turn to uh, psalm 22 this one strikes me as amazing the amazing work of god it was prophesied not only that christ would be crucified but it's prophesied what jesus would say upon the cross what the crowd would accuse him of and say and taunt him with and what the romans would do with his clothing psalm chapter 22 Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that not reminiscent of Christ on the cross? Verse 8, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he, because he delights in him. Was that not the accusations thrown at Christ upon the cross? And then jump down to verse 18, and they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Was that not fulfilled through the Roman centuries that were there at the foot of the cross? It's amazing that God is very specific in what He says is going to happen, and it comes about. 
verbatim, word for word. What God says happens. What God says man does. This is the God who we serve. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, also 8 and 12, says that Jesus would be a sin offering. That he would die for an, as a sin offering for the people. John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, Here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43 and Acts 13 also talk about this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Ephesians 1, 7. 1 Peter 2.24, Revelation 1, verse 5. All talk about the sin offering of Christ, of Him coming to take away the sin of the world, the blameless Lamb of God. This one here, you guys know where the book of Numbers is, I hope. I know it's one not many of you like to read because it can get kind of tedious and boring reading through lists and lists of people and numbers and all that stuff. But there's a lot of really neat stuff in there. Numbers chapter 9 and verse 12. We're going to read that this morning. Numbers chapter 9 and verse 12. For they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break a bone of it, according to all the statute of the Passover, that they shall observe it. Here we see the picture of the Passover lamb. We talked about this on a Wednesday night. The beautiful picture of Christ as the Passover lamb. And it says here that not a bone shall be broken. And we know that the thief on the left and the thief on the right, as was the habit and the practice of the Romans, they broke the legs of those on the cross. Why? Well, because when they had use of their legs, they could push up and still get a little oxygen. We know that the chief priests and the elders, knowing that a holy day was coming, asked Pilate that their legs would be broke, that they would not be on the cross for the next day. And we know that when they came to Christ, what did they find? Christ was already dead. He had already in his time, chose his death. He said it is finished, and he gave up his last breath, and he died. Also fulfilled the prophecy that he would be pierced in the side. And that was fulfilled because they pierced him in the side for what? To make sure that he was really dead, right? That he wasn't just not dead. And yet this prophecy was fulfilled. John 19, 31 through 37. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 also talks about that, that not a single bone was broke. It was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 9, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He died among thieves and was buried a rich man. We read in Matthew 27, Joseph of Arimathea fulfilled this prophecy, gave up his tomb, brand new, nobody was been laid in there, and he gave it for Christ. They took him down from the cross, and they buried him in a rich man's grave. We're going to talk about, we've got two more that we're going to hit on really quick. The resurrection and the victory of Christ and the completeness of his work. Since you're not too far away, go to uh, Psalm 16. Psalm chapter 16. It's a beautiful psalm of David. And verse 10 says specifically, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay or to see the corruption of the pit. That's another interpretation of the Hebrew. Psalm 30 and verse 3, and also Psalm 110 verse 1, speaks that Christ would not be left in the grave. We know that Christ rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sat down 
What does sitting down signify? It signifies completion. The work is done. There's nothing left for him to do. And he sat at the right hand of the Father. 1 Corinthians verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 17 says, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless, for you are still in your sins. And then in verse 20, says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The book of Hebrews talks much about the victory of Christ, about his priesthood, about his kingship. This is the Christ who is raised in victory, in power. And because of this, we have faith, we have hope, we have salvation. Which leads us to our last one, is Jesus was our perfecter and our justification. Isaiah, we've been in Isaiah quite a bit this morning, but Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to read verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 says this, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief. For if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and he will be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquity. Ephesians chapter 1 is a beautiful chapter. It's a tough read. There's a lot of truth in there to chew on. But that speaks of the glory of Christ and of the work that he accomplished on the cross. Chapter 2 as well. But we're going to look at Hebrews and we're going to look at one verse in chapter 12. If you would turn there with me this morning. We're going to finish here. Hebrews chapter 12. Specifically verse 2. Because Jesus is our perfecter, since he is our justification, since he brought salvation, it says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and who sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the Savior we celebrate this Advent season. We've only looked at 24. Very short list. Yet very immense in the proportions and in the value that it brings. In the grace of Christ that it brought. We looked at 24. And yet there are over 300 prophecies. Some yet to be fulfilled. Many of them already fulfilled. This is the God that we serve. So we can plumb the depths of God for all eternity and praise Him that we will have that opportunity and we will never, ever not be in awe of who He is because He is great. So let us celebrate with confidence, with great confidence, because our Savior came. Because He came to earth a little over 2,000 years ago. As He said, as was foretold, as was predicted, as was came true. Every word of it. And because of that, we look forward to his second coming, his second advent, which is yet to come. And he's not coming again as a babe in a manger. Revelation tells us very plain he is coming as a conquering king with robes dipped in blood, righteous and true, with power and authority. 
with eyes like a flame of fire searching the souls of men. This is the Christ whom we serve. This is the Christ who came, who set aside his privileges of heaven and glory to come as a babe, to come as in the sinful flesh of man and yet was perfect and satisfied the wrath of God, satisfied the penalty of our sin so that we may become children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are so great, that you are majestic and mighty, that you are glorious, and that you are worthy of all the praise that we can give. And Father, we ask your forgiveness that we cannot worship you in a spirit of truth and righteousness and perfectness yet. But we look forward to that day when we can come before your throne, where we can bow down before you, and we can say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and power and majesty. Father, we look forward to that day when we can worship without the hindrance of our flesh, without the hindrance of our sin getting in the way. Father, we just pray that you will help us to practice now to be faithful to worship, be faithful to give you the glory and the praise to your name. And we thank you that you are a God that is so mighty that you didn't just take a small number of eight or a small number of 48 but that you are a God who is great, that we cannot even measure, and that you fulfill your word, that you are perfect, and that what you have promised is true. We thank you that you are faithful and that you give so much evidence of your faithfulness, of your power, of your truth, and of your worth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan.